Thank you very much. Let me just uh, get a little bit of water. Is it, uh, is it on? Okay, oops, here. Ah, thank you very much. Well, I want to thank uh, Catherine Godson for the generous introduction and uh, Hugh Brady and the, and the assembled faculty for the uh, great honor that's uh, been given to me. And uh, I want to uh, share with you tonight some ideas uh, that are, I think, relevant to the research agenda that we're outlining uh, for the next few years here at uh, UCD. It's customary in such settings when you get such an award to look back and reflect on the work that led to the award and, and to some, somehow summarize what one's uh, life's work has been. But tonight what I want to do is look forward and I want to describe a research agenda that has already been uh, described to you is being undertaken here at UCD in conjunction with support from the Atlantic Foundation uh, and will join research here with the Conway Institute and the Geary Institute that I believe will help make UCD a world leader in economic psychology and neuroscience of child development. And I want to share with you today some of the vision that we have as a group uh, delivered and what the evidence is. And as you will see as I talk tonight, there will be a lot of gaps in this evidence, which is why this is really a research project, not just a, a statement of some final research uh, program. And so, but I want to, of course, uh, express this from the point of view of an economist, why an economist should be interested in these questions, and why in particular an economist should be interested in child development and its implications. So I think uh, we know uh, from a purely economic standpoint, and this is something that's become quite important in the last 30 years as the economy has developed, that skills are important to any functioning modern economy, much more so than they would have been even 100 years ago. But we also know that the importance of skills, and skills here are cognitive and non-cognitive skills, we have learned, and I'll show you a little bit of the evidence that supports this work, and evidence that needs to be elaborated, that these skills are formed at early ages and that they're not easily changed at later ages. And that's a major finding that's bolstered not only in the research in economics, but parallel research in psychology and in neuroscience. What we've also learned is the family is the major source of these skills. And so the actual mechanisms by which families influence the formation of skills, personality traits, traits that are important for performance in modern society, the actual mechanisms are still very much an active subject of investigation. But we have some ideas, and we also have some experimental evidence and correlational evidence, and I want to share this today in outlining this research agenda. And we know that the family, however, when we finally unpack it, the family is a major source of these skills. It, understanding the exact mechanisms of influence is a subject of immense importance, great interest, and uh, an ongoing aspect of, of what we will do here. I think it's natural for human beings to be interested in how it is they develop and how it is people develop. It's a suitable topic for idle curiosity. But I think on a purely pragmatic basis, it's important for understanding uh, how skills and labor force evolve to understand the mechanisms and the formations of these skills, especially as they're rooted in the early ages. Over the centuries, many philosophers and scholars have speculated about human development. 
And so a very famous economist, not an Irish economist, I'm sorry to say, a Scottish economist, so still a Celt, uh, <clears throat> was interested in the issue of how it is that people differed. And Smith had a vision, which he writes in his famous book, The Wealth of Nations, done some more than 220 years ago, uh, 225 years ago, um, uh, actually 230 years ago, I guess, this year. And his vision was very different from what we think of now. And I think it's very important that we understand how much we've learned from Smith, partly because we've collected better data, partly because we have gone through and now made a link much more tightly between economics and science. But Smith's vision, written back in, in, in 1776 or published then, was a vision essentially that people were all born essentially alike. And they were molded by society and by their own choices, professional choices, to be different. So Smith had a vision that by age eight, children were more or less the same. They weren't, there wasn't that much differentiation. And then after that, people specialized to be the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and so forth. But what we've learned, of course, in the last 200 years since Smith, is we've learned a great deal more about human development. And we know that we've moved from the speculation that really is characteristic of Smith and many great minds, important speculation, and potentially insightful speculation, we have a much more solid base for what it is and how it is that human skills form. And we certainly know by age eight there are enormous differences among children, and some of them very difficult to, to really change. We know, we've learned that people are not born alike, and that society, and especially the family and the institutions that support or undermine the family, help mold the development of the child. And what we're doing now, and what is being developed here, and developed in a new and exciting part of economics, linking itself to the hard sciences, is developing empirically documented models of human development. And I think we can have, say fairly, that we've started to develop a consensus. But there's a lot left to know, and I'll, I'll discuss that. So the important themes of this research that are rooted in, uh, in, 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 a, in vast bodies of research, social science research, psychology, uh, and economics, and sociology, and education, as well as the work in neuroscience and in primatology demonstrates the following, that there are critical and sensitive periods in the formation of the life of children, and that family inputs and the timing of family inputs matter greatly. And what we've learned from a series of experimental interventions is that we are able to move beyond the correlational evidence that's dominated a lot of the studies of social science in this area to real experimental interventions where we can begin to at least understand in a treatment control sense th that there are some possibilities for interventions that improve the lives and well-being of children and that also uh, are, give us some guidance, some hint about actual physical mechanisms by which interventions can undo the effects of disadvantage and enhance the effects of early advantage. So I want to talk a bit about that tonight. I also want to talk about a major finding, which is that in the 30 years or so in, in psychology and social science, we've moved a great deal away from the notion of ability, sometimes captured by the term IQ, as being fundamental or determinative. Uh, we've also moved away from distinctions about genes versus environment. There used to be this distinction in social science anyway, where people would say, well, is it genes or is it environment? We now know much more but need to know even more about the gene-environment interactions. We have hints and sometimes very strong body pieces of evidence that gene-environment interactions are, are, are paramount. But what we're learning about now is the dynamics of skill formation, and we're starting to understand in a very precise way 
in a quantitative way, moving beyond just qualitative speculation. So let me talk a little bit about this work, which I view as a, as a prologue for and, and, and part of our general research agenda. So let me see if I can uh, work this. So you have a copy of this. I think everybody has a copy of the handout, so uh, you can uh, either see the screen or read along with me. But what we know from, this is now my role as an economist, what we know is the labor market is the major source of income for most people in most countries. What we also know in the last uh, 20, 30 years is that inequality has become a serious problem in many countries. Even countries like Ireland, where the level of well-being has increased uh, for the general population, there still are pockets of poverty. And of course, those poverty and much of the determinant of the poverty is the set of skills that people bring to the labor market. And so differences in abilities and skills, education, post-school training, cognitive and non-cognitive skills, turn out to be major sources of inequality in, 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 a, in modern society. Now, what we've learned is to think about the skill formation process in a much more coherent way than we used to. If you read a lot of government reports even today, you'll get a notion of what I would call a shotgun approach, where what one wants to do is spend a bit of money on this, a bit of money on that, say job training programs, on, on training programs, uh, schooling programs, tuition subsidy programs, possibly early childhood programs. But without a very coherent vision about how these programs interrelate, what the nature is of the mechanisms and the interconnections across the life cycle of the developing child. And so what we've learned is to try to connect these different stages of skill formation. We've learned that abilities are major determinants of schooling attainment, job training, and the returns to these activities. They're major determinants of a variety in social life. But we've also learned, and this is a huge change over what the thinking was even 20, 30 years ago, that ability is multifaceted and consists of cognitive ability, for example, a pure form of IQ, and non-cognitive abilities like persistence, motivation, self-discipline, and so forth. And the fact that this distinction between cognitive and non-cognitive is not even all that clear, and in fact the measurement and distinctions has also given us a much richer picture. So we understand that aspects which were completely neglected in public policy discussions turn out to be critically important. A lot of the economics literature early on would focus mostly on schooling or just ability. And here what we've learned is that, in fact, ability is multifaceted. Ability gaps open up very early, and they open up long before formal schooling begins. And this is a very important lesson that we've learned. These gaps are produced by family environments, and they can be remediated. So understanding these dynamics is really the goal of this project. And policies that essentially that reduce inequalities in early environments reduce inequality and raise productivity. Oops. So one, uh, economists like to talk about the so-called equity efficiency trade-off. And the notion is there are some public policies that have a fairness aspect to them, but essentially do not have very high efficiency attached to them. There are other policies that essentially have a, an efficiency notion, but may in fact be unfair. The, the standard example in the U.S. policy discussion is, for example, capital gains taxation. We know that capital and capital uh, taxation, in particular, works against the accumulation of physical capital, and uh, capital is important for the growth of the economy. So we have tax cuts, but many people would say, no, these tax cuts are unfair because the rich are gaining at the expense of the poor. 
uh, and the poor paying a greater share of the total budget. But in the case of looking at policies towards disadvantaged young children, there is, in fact, no equity efficiency trade-off. And it makes it a very rare policy discussion, a very rare feature. It's a very rare policy where investing in young children lacks this notion of an equity efficiency trade-off. But what we've also learned is that if we look at policies of skill formation that are directed towards later stages of the life cycle of a child, for example, adult remediation programs, convict rehabilitation programs, and the like, there is, in fact, an equity efficiency trade-off. By that, I mean that the structure of the uh, investments are such that it's more productive, actually, to invest in the more able and the more motivated people who are teenagers and people in their early 20s. But if we go back early enough in the life cycle of the child where the foundation for later skills is determined, there is no such trade-off. And so that has a very important policy lesson and essentially means that conventional policy discussions are off the mark because they miss the importance of the dynamic nature of the skill formation process. Until recently, it was the case that most economists, for analytical convenience, collapsed the lifetime of the child into one period. There was no notion of an early period, a late period, the notion that, that a foundation was important for later skills. And what we've learned now is that, in fact, that we have this multiple dynamic uh, model connecting the skill formation of process across the life cycle. And this gives a very important guide for what policy formation should be and, in fact, how we treat poverty in modern societies, how we can cure poverty and, and devise policies that are effective. And so we learn both negative lessons and positive lessons. One negative lesson is that schools really cannot remedy years of neglect by families. In, in the United States and in many other countries, there's been a belief that somehow the public schools could solve problems created by families, created by years of early neglect. And what we've learned is when a child comes to the school at age six, seven, and eight, it becomes extremely difficult if the child does not have an adequate foundation in both cognitive and non-cognitive skills for the child to perform. So what we've learned, and this helps interpret a large body of economic evidence, that many interventions, many interventions are essentially uh, that we think as being effective, like reductions in classroom size, are marginally really quite weak compared to what interventions would pay off in terms of uh, benefit cost ratios for interventions in an early age. So I'll show you some calculations where the economic returns to marginal reductions in pupil-teacher ratios are very tiny, in fact, maybe even negative. But the returns to uh, investment in young children turn out to be quite high. And then, of course, the question is, what's the exact mechanism and what particular interventions are most effective? So another policy, and a set of policies that have become established in modern societies, for example, tuition reduction programs for disadvantaged families, are unlikely to go very far in alleviating schooling gaps by family status. In the U.S., we have a lot of discussion about reducing tuition. And uh, we know there's a correlation between family income and college attendance. But the question is, what's the mechanism? What is the mechanism that gives rise to this? And can we wait to age 16, 17, 18 to essentially reduce uh, gaps across families by reducing tuition? Or is that policy effective compared to policies that might target earlier ages? And in fact, I want to argue the data strongly suggests that targeting early ages is much more efficient. 
And so this also has important policies for what we call job training, second chance remediation programs. <clears throat> so for example, uh, in the U.S. and in many countries around the world, the name changes. Some, in the U.S. we call it job training, in Europe active labor market programs, but they're huge expenditures in, in many items. If you look, for example, at the Swedish uh, economy or the German economy, you'll find three to four percent of the whole production of the economy is actually being spent on active labor market programs, with an idea being to change and transform workers who've been displaced from their jobs and to make them reintegrate into the larger modern economy. What we've learned is that these programs are much weaker, much weaker, have much lower effects, much lower rates of return than programs that are targeted towards younger people. And so if we think about a portfolio of life cycle assessments, it's not that we give up on adults, but we recognize that the rates of return, the economic return, the payout per unit dollar invested, much, much lower on these job training programs, especially for disadvantaged workers. And so out of this can come a more coherent view of public policy. So instead of thinking we can wait a bit and let the, and let the let, and, and even if we neglect the early years, compensate in later years, which was essentially the vision created by the, the notion that, that early and late were really all one period in the life of the child, if we recognize the stages of development, we have a much more nuanced and careful view of public policy. So the highest interventions are in fact to the very early interventions which set the stage for and create the abilities needed for success in life. So the, the major theme of this lecture and a lot of this work is putting more bones, more understanding on these basic themes. That skill begets skill and that it's both a theoretical and empirical proposition. And I would argue that at current levels of spending, most societies are underinvesting in the early years for their disadvantaged persons. And so this, uh, this, this, this graph, which is essentially a, a document, uh, a template for what, what needs to be filled in in further research, shows what, what a body of research from evaluation studies in social science has shown. Here we plot the so-called rate of return to investment in human capital. And what this is, is the dollar payout if we invest at an early age, say here in the preschool years versus the schooling years versus the post-school years. And this curve here is a curve that essentially arises from what we call the technology of skill formation. The notion there is a dynamic relationship of early skill begetting later skill produces this pattern whereby an early investment pays off, not just because it creates an ability, but it makes it easier for people to learn. There's a parallel pattern. If we look, for example, in neuroscience, if we look, for example, in primatology, we know a lot of work in psychology about the effect of early learning and, and exposure, creating the platform, the neural development for essentially later learning. So a big chunk of why this curve has this property, that the returns, the economic return, the payoff per unit dollar invested tends to decline, has to do with the technology of skill formation. And I want to talk more precisely about some econometrics and actually some neuroscience and primatology of, the, of this technology of skill formation in my lecture on Friday. But here I just want to summarize the main lesson, which shows you this downward sloping curve. So what does this mean? Well, it means there's still returns to investment at different stages of the life cycle. But what it means is you get very high return, the multiplier effect, if you will, that come from investment in the early years as opposed to the later years. 
So this is a theoretical schedule, but I would also argue it's an empirical schedule. But as a theoretical schedule, what does this say? Well, we can invest dollars in people, or we can invest dollars in machines or physical capital. And so the opportunity cost of funds, a very important concept for economists, opportunity cost is probably one of the most basic ideas, that and comparative advantage. So we think here, well, here's opportunity cost of funds, and this is what we could do if we didn't invest in people. So we can get an earnings, we can get a rate of return. So if R, which is over there on this axis, is the measured rate of return, say what you can get in passbook savings, then what we find is in the early years we get very, very high returns. Returns that have been estimated to be as high as 15 to 20 percent. In the later years, the rates of return are typically much lower. And if we were, had a new, more nuanced version of this figure, we would have that the returns would be higher for more able people and less high for, 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 for less able people as you move out across age. But what would be interesting is if we actually plotted ability on this graph, that you would find that children who grew up in relatively deprived investments, environments, lacking the stimulation and resources available to middle class children would have the very highest return. So what happens is this reversal over the life cycle of the child, where the curve for the disadvantaged child actually is higher in the early years and then falls down in the later years. Why? Because the platform isn't constructed. Because by the time the child is 17, 18, and 20, the child may lack the abilities and may lack the motivations. And it's very difficult. And at current experience levels, the amount we've spent on these programs, there really isn't a very high return. And it's not saying we can't intervene successfully, it just means we're going to have to spend a lot more than we currently spend to make those programs for disadvantaged uh, young adults as a, a very effective. But in the early years, there's a very, very high return. So I would argue that this is a theoretical proposition, but it's also an empirical proposition that in most societies, especially if we look at disadvantaged children, we tend to overinvest in the early, in, in the later years where we're remediating and not investing in the early years when we could really create and avoid these problems and create the base for future development. So let me just summarize the argument. Uh, I don't want to uh, uh, go into too, uh, too much detail because I want to talk, uh, have some interactions. But let me just uh, lay out some main points, which I think do, do summarize the argument uh, in, in, a, in a concise way. First of all, we really need to understand the life cycle skill formation. And we're understanding it, and we're in the middle of understanding it. So this is where the cooperation across the sciences, where economics can draw in a lot of work in neuroscience, psychology, epidemiology, and the like. What we've learned is that life cycle skill formation is dynamic in nature. The phrase here I used earlier, skill begets skill, motivation begets motivation, very important. So if the child is not motivated and stimulated to learn, then that's more likely the child will fail in social and economic life. And what we've learned, and this is a, a result of our collecting a lot of new longitudinal data. I'll show you a few snippets of that data tonight. What we've learned is that many major economic and social problems can be traced to low levels of skill and ability in the population. And that's a major finding. So we know now, in a way that we didn't know even 20 years ago, that many social and economic problems can be traced to low levels of skill and ability, but also that abilities are multiple in nature. And so the public policy discussion, universities operate with smart people, there's no question about it. And so we typically we think of cognition as being the most important trait. We forget that most of us here and most people 
who are successful in some form or other in life are people who also are highly motivated and people who actually apply themselves. So a lot of public policy discussion is focusing on cognitive ability and IQ, which is actually, as, as the neuroscientists would recognize, a very vague concept, actually, and hard to really, to really uh, operationalize. So they're important. We know that IQ and cognitive abilities are important. But what we've learned is that socio-emotional skills are also very important. And what's interesting, so motivation, perseverance, and tenacity feed in to performance in society. And what we've also learned is that not only do they feed into performance in society, they actually also perform, they feed into the very measurements of cognition that we use. Motivated children are the ones who work hard to take, prepare a test, and succeed in a test. So the distinction between cognitive and non-cognitive is actually blurring. But what we recognize then is that these features, which aren't anywhere in the economics texts, which aren't anywhere in the public policy discussions about motivation, perseverance, turn out to be very, very important. What we've also learned is that early family environments are major predictors of both cognitive and socio-emotional abilities. So I can say this not only in the sense of a correlation, where we can essentially sow, while families from certain disadvantage, measures of disadvantage produce children who are more likely to commit crime, who are more likely to go on welfare, who are more likely, who are less likely to succeed in the labor market, be unemployed and the like. What we can also show is that correlational, that experimental evidence in a positive way, which reinforces adverse family environments, actually can show us that in fact we can do something about these problems. But there's a lot more to be understood to try to understand what the mechanism is. So we know families are important. And we know that in many countries around the world, uh, that uh, the, uh, there's this concern because the percentage of children being born into relatively disadvantaged environments or disadvantaged environments has increased over the last 40 years. A greater fraction of American children, for example, are being born into families where the mothers are less educated and in some ways less able to, to, to raise children to the same level of uh, skill that a middle class mother who's educated and knows more about child rearing would be able to accomplish. So the experimental evidence is interesting here. The experimental evidence, which I'll share with you a bit, supports a large body of non-experimental evidence that, non that adverse family environments promote adult failure. It does so in a positive way by supplementing family resources and following the children who get the supplementation into their adulthood. We can see real gains, real lasting benefits. And these are exactly the interventions that are now being conducted in Ireland, where actually in 10 years, Ireland's going to be the world's leader in this field, to show even a more concise way how if society intervenes early enough, it can affect both cognitive and socio-emotional abilities. And so I'll show you some of the evidence, which has been widely cited, but needs considerable bolstering, that early interventions enriched family environments that are essentially promoting both cognitive and non-cognitive skills, promote schooling, reduce crime, promote workforce productivity, and reduce uh, some, some behavior like teenage pregnancy, multi-generation families. And on a purely economic, purely economic basis, these interventions have high benefit cost ratios and high rates of return. And they have much higher returns than other later interventions, as I mentioned earlier, public job training, uh, convict rehabilitation programs, and the like. And all of this has to do with that graph I put up. It all has to do with the technology of human skill formation, 
where we understand how early inputs accumulate and complement each other over the life cycle. So I mentioned trends in family environments. In the U.S. and many other countries, more children are born into these adverse environments. And what we learned is we can partially compensate for those environments. Part of the studies that we're conducting in Ireland, will conduct, will essentially consider alternative mechanisms, not only from the point of view of alternative interventions, but alternative interventions guided by some scientific and economic theory about which particular interventions can compensate for which aspects of adversity in human environments and that lead to, that lead to a late. So we know this. And so uh, the, uh, let, me, let me just skip past this and just ma make a point, though, uh, in terms of my very opening remarks about labor force growth, that if we looked at this question purely as an economic question, we would know that labor force productivity is slowing down in many countries precisely because uh, labor force quality is growing more slowly. We're in a period where skills are at a great premium. So the return to education is increasing in most countries. Very high demand. At the same time, there's been a relative slowdown in the growth of skilled workers, creating inequality in the current labor market and also creating uh, 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 notions of relative poverty. So let me just give you some idea of the relative supply of college-educated workers by cohort. Uh, for example, in the United States, we've seen a secular increase up to the period of, uh, <clears throat> these, are, these are years of birth. So starting from people born at the beginning of uh, last century, up until about people born around the mid-50s, every generation had a secular increase in the number of college graduates relative to non-college graduates. That growth has actually slowed considerably since the cohorts in the last 30, 40 years. Picked up a little bit in the late 80s as the returns to schooling increased but still has nowhere near historic trends. Now, you could say, well, maybe the trend was unsustainable. But what we've seen as a counterpart in these markets where the growth has slowed is an increase in the real wage, which comes exactly from the scarcity. This is true in the U.S., it's true in Canada, it's also true in the United Kingdom. It's been studied in many countries around the world. And so we should be concerned because the growth in labor force quality is a major component of labor productivity growth. And we've seen a slowdown in this in many countries. We also know, for example, that education, and I've given you only one dimension of education, there are other aspects, other measurements of education. Education is closely related to uh, crime. So if you look at it as purely correlational level, and then more recent work, which is looking at the structure of intervention in, uh, by randomized trials and the like, we see in, in so-called methods of instrumental variables we see that high levels of education are associated and even are causally associated with lower levels of crime. So a recent paper by Lochner and Moretti shows that subsidizing education to reduce crime is actually a better policy than adding police to prevent crime. So for example, my colleague at the University of Chicago, Steve Levitt, presented an estimate that essentially if you wanted to reduce crime to a certain level, then uh, uh, the annual cost of, uh, uh, of reducing this crime uh, would be about uh, the annual cost of crime, reducing the annual cost of crime of $200,000 a year, it would cost about $80,000 per year to train police officers. So, increase, so one mechanism for reducing crime is, of course, to have more police on the streets. And he estimates that we can get a big saving. It's a huge gain here. 
and you get $200,000 reduction by having $80,000 a year policy. So that's a good public policy in terms of a benefit-cost ratio. But what happened is that Lochner and Moretti found that if you looked at the same $200,000 reduction in crime, but essentially did this in the form of educating children, just getting them to graduate high school, that the cost would be about $15,000 a year. So again, in a steady state proposition, on a cost basis, you're getting the same benefit for about one-fifth of the cost if you think ahead, if you plan ahead, and you actually invest in the children. So we know that it's much cheaper in just one instance, and there are many other instances of this type, to invest in young children than to train police to fight crime. But fighting crime is still an effective policy. It's just that you could spend, if you spent the money in other years, now obviously any social policy will consist of a portfolio of these things, but relatively more would be spent here and relatively less spent in just reducing uh, uh, the, the crime through uh, police. So we've learned that these early abilities and motivations do affect uh, success and failure in schooling, and schooling has huge predictive effects. I'll skip past, uh, since I only have a uh, uh, limited amount of time, but let me, let me, the important finding is that we have for family resources, we know that family resources matter. There's been a large amount of work, ever since data were collected on families and the outcomes of children, we've known that family income is a major predictor of success of children. But the real issue, and the issue that we've gone beyond, is the feature of family resources. What aspects of families are actually giving rise to the success of performance? So richer families do better. But is it just the money? Or is it just the money at 17 to finance college? Or is it something else? And it's really the modern literature is suggesting <coughs> that it's something else. So the parental, what we've learned is, of course, parental resources are very important in determining the schooling and lifetime achievement of children. And so economists like to talk about credit constraints, the inability to, to borrow. But what we've learned is that, you know, many different types of credit constraints that might be operative. But what we've learned is that the operative credit constraints are not just the inability of families to borrow against income of their children, even during their college-going years, Oh, that's important. It's not the inability of the child, the, the child herself or himself to borrow against, uh, uh, to, to finance the education. In the U.S., we've operated policies towards disadvantaged groups where certain groups can go to college free, no cost, heavy subsidy even going to college. And many groups don't even take up this initiative. Why? Because they don't perceive themselves at age 16, 17, and 18 being able to benefit from that college education. They simply lack the skills, the schooling, and the training. That's their decision. They have the resources, and the, and the, and the, and the society encourages it. The operative credit constraints in this situation are the inability of children to buy better parents, if you will. So you can think of this in a very whimsical way where you market, you know, economists like to think about markets. But it's true that the accident of birth is a major determinant of success of children. And it's, there's also a subsidiary constraint, which is different, which is the inability of parents to borrow against the children's future income to support the investment in children. But it's this early foundation that's far more important than the later foundation, which is receiving, than the later, than the later constraints that receive so much attention. So what we've learned is that tuition gaps explain very little of the gap in college enrollment. So when we look at this correlation, between family income and college attendance, for example, and there's a real correlation there. What we've learned is that once you condition on family background and ability 
and you look at motivation and, non and cognitive skills, that those gaps essentially are explained more by the long-term factors that appear in the child's stock of skills, capital, those, those abilities at 17, 18, and 19. Those factors are far more important in explaining gaps in who goes to college and who doesn't than family income at age 16, 17, and 18. So this is a, this is a very important finding. And, and family background plays a huge role. But what aspect of family background? Let me, let me skip ahead. So trends in environments are poor. We've, we've discussed that. What we've also know, though, as I said, more families, more children in modern societies, the phenomenon has been that more, more women are becoming educated. More educated women are actually having fewer children. This is a very well-documented phenomenon, something the eugenics movement worried a lot about and reached some very unfortunate conclusions about. But the fact of the matter is that we are in a situation where relatively more children are being born to uneducated women, women who are in a less strong position to essentially uh, produce uh, and, 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 and stimulate their children. The response is not to have some draconian genetic policy, but to respond through an environmental interaction and that uh, intervention, and that's what I want to talk about. So what do we know? We've learned, we've gained a lot of evidence from 100 years ago when the eugenics movement was getting going. And I certainly don't want to endorse that movement. What we've learned, though, is that the mothers now who are actually producing, mothers with less cognitive ability, less education, tend to have children earlier and tend to have more children. But we know that in terms of cognitive stimulation or early environments, that those mothers are essentially producing stimulating. Here's a, here's a measure. The actual scale isn't so important as the relative rank here. Women with less than 12 years of schooling, those who have essentially a secondary schooling, those with more secondary schooling, this is the amount of cognitive stimulation if we just measure the input, the amount of time the mother reads to the child, the amount of motivation given to the child to learn, taking the child to, uh, to, 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 to learning experiences and so forth. See huge gaps in terms of ability, in terms of schooling of the mother. Uh, you can look at this in terms of the mother's final year of schooling on emotional stimulation, whether or not the mother is essentially encouraging the child to explore and to reach out and so forth. We've learned, for example, that uh, a very famous study by some psychologists at the University of Kansas, Hart and Risley, document that at the age of uh, three years, uh, the average child from a, an advantaged or just a middle class family will have roughly three to four times more words read to it than a child from a disadvantaged family. And this accumulates, and this accumulates in a number of ways. So not only is the stimulation level different, but the form of the stimulation, the, the difference in the encouragement of the child. So this sounds like it's all, um, it, it, you know, it, 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 it sounds like the environments are, and, and it's been well documented that disadvantaged environments are essentially providing much less cognitive stimulation. If we look at another way, another dimension, which is mother's ability, going from the bottom of the curve here to the top of the curve, we see substantial differences uh, in the amount of stimulation. This is the amount of stimulation. We have input measurements now from the CNLSY. I'll talk more about these on Friday. But here we can actually measure the intensity at which the mother is reading to the child, stimulating the child, and the like. Huge differences across ability. It's those early environments that are producing a big uh, chunk of, of input across them. And same thing about emotional skills and so forth. So at a crude correlational level, the sociologists here I'm drawing on some work by Sarah McClanahan and Gary Sandifer published some 10 years ago. But we see that if we look at teenage childbearing, just one measure, 
So how are the daughters of families of different type of advantage? So the crude cut is marital, non-marital. So families born, uh, two-parent families versus one-parent families, big differences in the performance of the children. We want to go beyond these kinds of correlations to understand what the causal mechanisms are. And part of the causal mechanism has to do with these resources available. But it's not just money. It's also this kind of level of stimulation, cognitive and non-cognitive, and the long-term consequences. So what do we know about abilities in education? I, I will simply say, since I have, hmm, I'm running a bit short here. So let me, let me just talk a little bit about what we know about abilities and outcomes. Cognitive and non-cognitive abilities are, are very important. And uh, schools, uh, schooling gaps have much more to do with ability deficits than family finances. That's extremely important. So let me, let me skip past this uh, to just say that what we've, what, uh, what we've learned from a series of studies where we can measure both cognitive and non-cognitive skills is the following. So we have measurements now. In fact, one whole line of research that is potentially very important and essentially provides the, an architecture, a foundation for our, our research is that both cognitive and non-cognitive skills are affecting a variety of different aspects of behavior. So for example, what does this graph show? This shows the probability of being a high school dropout, dropping out of a secondary school by both cognitive and non-cognitive ability measures. Let me first of all show the results for women. These are given here. What this graph shows is the probability of dropping out. That's what this axis is, the probability of dropping out of high school. So it ranges at the lowest levels of ability, both cognitive and non-cognitive, from zero, from about 0.2 to a level here which is close to zero when you reach the highest levels of ability. So in terms of measures, so if we move somebody, I'm not saying we know exact mechanisms by which we move people across these distributions, and that's what the Irish experiments will establish. But what we see is a mechanism. We see that if we can move people from the bottom of this distribution to the top of this distribution, we get huge effects for males, uh, for females. Now what's interesting, and this is a finding that's been much remarked, is there are gender differences in some of these abilities, and gender differences in the effects of changing these abilities. So if we look at males, for example, here we're looking at uh, males uh, in terms of moving down in the cognitive distribution, and what we find is very substantial effects, even stronger than for females, moving from a dropout rate of about 0.35, holding everything else fixed, to a level close to zero if you move somebody to the top of the distribution. Non-cognitive motion, less, uh, less, less of an effect. And that actually affects the design of early intervention programs. But let me, let me skip past here and look, for example, at what's the probability of being a four-year college graduate. Now this is a positive result. As we move from the bottom of the distribution, with the lowest level of cognitive and non-cognitive abilities to the top of the distribution, what we see is a substantial improvement in these uh, probabilities of participation. But again, a gender effect. Here, where non-cognitive abilities are playing less of a role for women in terms of completing, but still playing a role. Uh, jail, for example, crime. When we look at moving somebody from the bottom of the distribution to the top of the distribution, we see a huge change in, in the probability somebody would commit a crime. And so if we're simply looking at the issue of who's ever been in jail, just one measure of criminal activity, predominantly male activity, cognitive, non-cognitive, both important, and they reduce crime tremendously if, in fact, we can find mechanisms for intervening. Smoking is another dimension. Teenage pregnancy, another dimension. 
where we can move dramatically, people from the bottom of the distribution to the top of the distribution, producing a reduction in uh, the probability of uh, being single with child. One graph that's uh, uh, showing in terms of wages, this is for males, this is how if we move somebody from the bottom of the distribution, the lowest deciles, to the top deciles, we can see how much of a movement we get in terms of wages. These are very substantial wage effects. So in terms of the economic benefits, substantial. This is an effect including the effect of schooling, but if you look at the figures in your handout, I really won't have time to develop those, but uh, if you, this is taking this graph, this two-dimensional graph, a three-dimensional graph, and converting into two two-dimensional graphs, holding the other variable at its mean level, we can see substantial effects in terms of log wages, which are, these are huge effects, really, from the bottom of the skill distribution in terms of cognitive factors to the top, the bottom of this to the top, we get huge effects. And so the, the, these, effects, uh, these effects are very substantial. Both cognitive and non-cognitive factors matter. Similar pattern for males and females in this dimension, and by schooling level you get similar effects, but I'll skip past that in the interest of brevity. So uh, what we've also learned, though, is these abilities, people with these abilities, higher levels of both cognitive and non-cognitive abilities are much more likely to take post-school company job training. So this is the notion of dynamic complementarity. People who have a platform of these skills turn out to acquire more skill, to be learning. So we find more able people are learning into their 60s, 70s, and 80s, whereas less able people, we find much evidence uh, that any kind of learning is stopping by the early 30s. So very substantial differences in terms of ability differences. Okay, so abilities explain these abilities that are so important for explaining so many outcomes open up early. And let me show you a graph that's extremely important for public policy discussion. We're looking at various versions of this graph. And I was very pleased uh, last uh, March, uh, a colleague of mine in the Committee on Education at the University of Chicago put up a graph that was almost identical to this. This is kind of independent confirmation. This is from schooling studies in Chicago. It had nothing to do. He wasn't even aware of this graph. We produced two graphs. I'm more than happy. Steve Roudenbush is his name. I'm more than happy to send you the citation. What he was doing was he was looking at test score gaps. These are gaps. Let me show you what these are. These are very important because they, show, they convey a lot of information. What this is is showing you what the average percentile rank is on a math score at different ages. So we start at 6, which is about the time people are entering school. We follow these people up to 12. These abilities, by the way, the math score is very highly predictive, correlated with success in these other dimensions that I just covered, things like teenage pregnancy th and so forth and so on. So here we can just look at the uh, percentage rank. And what we see is some real substantial gaps. The top figure corresponds to the rank of children from wealthier environments, say the, 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 the top quartile of the family income distribution measured during the period of early childhood for the family. Here's the bottom quartile. So you get a substantial gap here. So the rank here is 40th percentile here for the lower income children and up in the over 65 percentile, almost 65 percentile for the high income children. Very substantial gaps. Now you also see some widening of these gaps. But you'll also notice that at age six, when children are entering school, the gaps are already huge. Roudenbush's graph, actually, who my colleague at the University of Chicago, 
showed actually more parallelism than this shows. He was looking at data for children from different environments. Here, by the way, some of the gaps here are due to schooling quality. He was focusing strictly on schooling quality. He finds substantial differences, uh, and the, but the gaps open up early. They open up early. Schooling in the first few years essentially widens these gaps slightly. So there are some schooling differences here. There are effects of schooling. But after about age eight, there isn't much of an effect. And actually, after looking at this graph, my colleague at the University of Chicago, Derek Neal, wrote a whole paper on the subject. And trying to, he didn't believe it, actually, in the first case. And he actually shows in a number of other studies that the logic of this graph, I achieved this graph with Pedro Carnero, actually, in a paper we published three years ago. And, but, but later, the Raudenbusch evidence and the work by Derek Neal suggest very strongly that the, most of the gap in schooling achievement by family background is opening up early years, not later years. Now, in some sense, this has been anticipated by people. As long more recent, we go, this is recent evidence, but we go back 40 years ago to the Coleman Report published in the United States. What Coleman was saying is families matter in terms of schooling of the test score achievement of their children, not the schools. This graph is simply saying that in a slightly more precise way, and it's received a lot of confirmation. So it's saying then that gaps are opening up relatively early. It also is the case, and I don't want to dwell on this because I have better evidence. I, we can break this down into different groups, but, but if, we, if we residualize, if we just do a standard kind of correlational analysis, controlling for mother's inputs in early years, a mother's ability in the early years, mother's education, we can reduce these gaps. These are on the same scale, not completely eliminated. But of course, the problem with the correlational evidence is always the problem with correlational evidence. We don't really know if it's causal. We don't really know if there's some other mechanism at work. You know, some people would say it was genes or something. So I'll show you some experimental evidence that actually very supportive of this line. So uh, the same thing is true, by the way, of, of antisocial scores. I will just say that if you look at emotional measurements, we find a similar gap. A high antisocial score is a bad thing. So what happens is the top curve here is now associated with the poorest children and the bottom score with the best children in the sense of uh, families, better, better background, not the best children, but families that come from more advantaged backgrounds. And we get huge, uh, huge differences. So let me uh, skip past that. And uh, so what do we know? The previous evidence that I just gave you suggests that abilities are multiple in nature and the ability gaps and the abilities that are so important for success in adult life are not solely determined in the early years, but are very, the early years play a very important role. The evidence I just gave you was correlational in its, favor, in, in its flavor, though. It didn't really produce a, 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 a causal inference. The standard argument against such evidence is, of course, that we can't ever measure a true causal effect without some other assumption, some, some identifying assumption, as econometricians would call it, because of some possible unmeasured third common cause. But in this area, there's been a tremendous amount of work looking at experimental evidence. And it's where the Irish studies are going to play such a huge role in the coming years. Because here in Ireland, you're conducting studies which will allow us to intervene, do interventions where family supplements are provided, children are followed up long periods of time, and what from that evidence we're essentially going to learn much more about the dynamics of skill formation and what the appropriate policy would be. Let me just review some of the older evidence very briefly. Uh, the most reliable data come from experiments for obvious reasons and uh, for the reasons of establishing causality in a clear and easily interpretable way. 
Two of the investigations that are most prominent that serve as a, as a background for the Irish studies today are the so-called Perry Preschool Program and the Abyssidarian Program. Both of them have the feature of random assignment of treatment and control, and both of them are longitudinal, so we can actually follow individuals into adulthood. In the case of Perry, the children, are, the children in the original study are in their 40s now, and in the case of the Abyssidarian, the children are in their mid-20s and they're being followed on, both groups being followed on in, into, into later adulthood. Uh, we also have data from Head Start and the Chicago Parent Child Center. The Chicago Parent Child Center has big samples and follows individuals. It doesn't use random assignment, but it uses comparisons of children in essentially the same poverty regions, po poverty type areas, some receiving treatment in some areas, some not. So the design is a little different. It's a design comparing different regions. But let me just give you some idea of these programs because in Ireland we're designing these. So Perry was a program which is an intensive preschool program administered to 58 disadvantaged children. It supplemented resources to disadvantaged children. They were all African-American children and the, the years of the intervention between 1962 and 1967. And so let me just give you some brief summary what we know from these programs that we don't know. The treatment in Perry was very modest, really. Two and a half hour classroom session on weekday mornings and a weekly 90 minute home visit by the teacher on weekday afternoons. And, and each year was, was 30 weeks and they were followed for two years and then dumped back in the system. Okay? Uh, the Irish programs, or some of the Irish programs being considered are essentially richer in, 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 their, in their nature. So these groups have been followed 40 years. The Perry, pro the Abyssidarian program had 111 disadvantaged children, uh, some randomized into treatment, some into control. This was a much more intensive intervention. It's a year-round, full-day intervention uh, that continued through age 8. So it's much, much richer. And children uh, were followed up to age 21. It turns out that the, if you aggregate up the total amount of input that we have essentially more than five times the amount of resources invested in the children, obviously Darian. But the program is not exactly the same, and that's, that's important. I'll, let me just show you. So what do we find from these programs? Well, some evidence here uh, is quite interesting. This is from the uh, data, which we have now as part of our, our cooperative arrangement. If we look at the uh, Abyssidarian program, the treatment group is the red line, the intervention group. What we find is, just looking at IQ, which has received so much attention, we get huge effects in the... Uh, uh, if you, between treatment and control that persist. The, the reason why it declines is just a norming issue. The, uh, that, 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 that IQs are normed against the national population and there's a general drift, the so-called Flynn effect, where average IQ is declining across generations, uh, rising across generations, means that these scores decline. But, but the fact that the real story here is that there was actually an early intervention, very enriched, very intense, the intervention starts here at age four months, and children are followed, given the intervention up to the eighth grade, uh, eight years of school, sorry, eight years of age, and then essentially uh, put back into the mainstream. The Perry program starts later and puts the kids back into the mainstream two years, much less intense. So we don't know whether it's more intense or whether or not it's the early intervention, open question. Perry found that the treatment group got a big boost in their IQ, but by age 10, there's no gap. There's no, no gain in IQ between treatment and control. The Abyssidarian program shows a persistent gain. 
And so an open question, which the Irish studies can help settle, is how much of this persistence here had to do with the earlier age of the intervention and how much of it had to do with the intensity level of the intervention? An open question. And of course, what the actual physical mechanism would be. So if we look at these outcomes of both Perry and, and uh, these are well known, uh, often discussed, but what's amazing is that even though the Perry kids did not receive any higher IQ in the end, in, every, in many, many dimensions, the Perry children have much higher level of achievement. So if we look at special education, which is a bad thing, having to get special treatment in the school system, the Perry treatment group in red received much less, had to receive much less of these services than, than the control group. If we look at who's in the, who escapes the bottom of the barrel in terms of the lowest 10% on achievement tests, that even though these Perry kids are no smarter in terms of IQ, they're smarter in terms of achievement tests because their behavior, their motivation has been affected. Higher high school graduation rates, uh, earning $2,000 a month or more, this is in uh, uh, 1994 terms. Home ownership, never on welfare as an adult. So lasting effects. So two things. One, when we follow these people into age 40, we get lasting effects. B, their IQs did not go up, but their non-cognitive scores did. Real issue as is to exactly what the mechanism is that produces it. Obviously, Darian, much more intensive, produce, and, and, and uh, so intensive and earlier, produces also very dramatic effects. And in fact, if you compare the figures, you can, you have the handout in front of you, you actually find that it's more effective. And here we see very substantial gaps between the treatment group getting the, uh, getting the treatment and the control group in, in uh, participation in four-year colleges and a number of other dimensions. So what we've learned from these programs is these programs can work. What we haven't learned from these programs is exactly what, uh, what the mechanisms are that give rise to the success and failure. Uh, and we have some programs that have actually had failure. So let me, uh, let me skip past uh, this. I wanted to develop some of these themes. What we've learned is uh, that we've had tremendous, uh, the effectiveness of later interventions, well, we've studied this in many areas. Lots of work in economics, but hasn't organized this into a coherent framework. Economics and social science. Le later interventions are less effective at current levels of expenditure, and this is especially true for less able and less motivated children. This is the issue of the equity efficiency trade-off. <coughs> Finding children who are essentially coming from disadvantaged environments, if we remediate in their late teenage years, we're not getting a very high return. Current programs either have to be expended expanded tremendously, improved in some way, new design of technology, or something else has to give. The same thing is true about classroom size reduction. Schooling is not really doing much, of a, much for us. We do cost-benefit analyses. We find that the rate of return to schooling, reducing classroom size by five pupils per teacher, essentially produces a negative rate of return. So, it's, uh, so in terms of the graph that I put up earlier, we find that we get low returns for disadvantaged children, especially if we wait. High returns in the early years. Very important lesson. But the actual mechanisms remain to be explored. The studies that we have, the limited studies, we have three or four experiments. They've, they've tried different interventions, different packages. Ireland will become a world leader as it looks at these alternative interventions, tries different strategies, and tries to link the evidence, not just the treatment control differences, but the physical uh, and uh, biological 
and, and economic mechanisms. The mechanism I'm looking at is, uh, the, uh, is the technology of skill formation. So just to summarize what I said earlier, life cycle skill formation is dynamic in nature. And I, it's very important to understand that. It's also important in the, in, the in, the, in the notion of science. We're at a scientific institute today, and, and we're building a collaboration with science. But we have to understand that we need to know a lot more about the dynamics. We can collect much richer data. One aspect that has received a lot of neglect, actually, and not much attention, has been neglected in the, last, uh, in the early literature, is the link between early environments and health outcomes. We haven't looked at that. Simply, Perry studies and Obesidarian studies didn't think that was important. That was part of the emphasis 30, 40 years ago. What we've learned from a lot of work in epidemiology recently is good physical mechanisms, good biological mechanisms, understanding how it is that early stress, that early deprivation translates directly into the development of the organism. Encapsulating that, building that into the analysis would be very important. So the health intervention analysis will play a huge role. And so I could, uh, let, let me just make a few concluding remarks about uh, the, 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 the program and, 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 and what we plan to do. So the research that I described today, which is trying to synthesize this experimental evidence and the non-experimental evidence to build a coherent interpretive framework, is, is, uh, is, is, I think, been a success, but only a partial success. And so today I'm here not only to receive the medal, uh, which I receive with great gratitude, but to plan out what our next steps are. And I believe that we have a great opportunity here at UCD to make UCD a world leader in this field. And the, the initiative that's uh, supported by the Atlantic Foundation is, is going to have, I think, a major impact. And I really hope that we can draw uh, that uh, the Gary Institute, the Conway Institute, and then the group also at the University of Chicago can collaborate in building a new database and a new interpretive framework. And also towards this end, I want to announce the formation of a partnership between UCD and the uh, Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. Not just to analyze these data, but also to try to provide uh, training, uh, integration, uh, and uh, cooperation on a number of areas of uh, social science research. At the Harris School, there's a consortium of leading scholars in early childhood that meets on a regular basis to synthesize the evidence from other childhood interventions, these and others that I described in the lecture. Uh, and, and this consortium essentially will provide some very important guidance for the design of, of the uh, studies. So working with the Atlantic Foundation and the Irish government, the, the Gary UCD Harris UC partnership will design uh, and evaluate between 10 and 30 new intervention programs that will make Ireland uh, uh, a leader, as I say, and will substantially augment our knowledge of the technology of skill formation. And at the same time, we will introduce a rigorous evaluation group using modern statistical methods guided also by economic and biological theory, not just to make treatment control differences, but to understand the mechanisms by which these programs work so that we can guide policies. In the end, we want to go beyond this notion that this policy worked and this policy didn't work, but to try to synthesize the evidence in a way that we can put together new programs never previously tried, guided by science, guided by our information, to essentially create a foundation for public policy that will be, uh, that will be uh, innovative, uh, rigorous, and uh, I think influential around the world.
So thank you very much.